This episode is proudly brought to you by Squarespace. You know, we've been using Squarespace for years to manage our beautiful website at invisiblechoir.com. I love Squarespace because it's the easiest all-in-one web design platform. And with built-in tools like integrated blogging, website analytics, and even a members-only area where you can sell exclusive access to gated content, Squarespace is the easy choice if you're building your brand or business presence online. Head on over to squarespace.com slash choir for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir, and use offer code C-H-O-I-R to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We don't always know our neighbor as what we see at face value. We don't really know the answer, and we may never know why this actually happened. To understand how somebody died sometimes, we have to understand how they lived. And that goes uh, both ways for, for the victim and the suspect. We're back in Pensacola, Florida this week. And before anyone sends any emails or hits me up on social media, I know we'll eventually get out of Florida. But it's easier to get records here. And contrary to popular Reddit lore, I don't have an Uncle Chet who works for the Florida State Police. So there's that. But Florida is nice, especially if you're someone who lives in, I don't know, say, Otsego, Minnesota, where winter sticks around for about nine months out of the year. And for those who didn't know, Northern Florida is part of what many have long considered the Deep South, her history fraught with deeply racial and economic tension stemming from the early slavery and plantation era. But I digress. Aside from the sun, surf, and more longhorn steakhouses than one could throw a stick at, this region of the country is also home to many a good old Southern boy. You know, a man's man. Someone who works hard and plays hard. Someone who drinks 11 Bud Lights to stay hydrated beneath the scorching Florida sun. (laughs) I'm, I'm just kidding. Good old Southern boys, from what I understand, aren't concerned whatsoever with hydration. But what they are concerned with is keeping up with that time honored image and tradition. The stoic, quiet, hard working man. But in some cases, as the ancient proverb advises, beware the quiet man. Especially if he's a good old southern boy from Florida. At just after 8.30 in the morning on Thursday, May 23rd, 2019, a woman was out walking her dog at the end of Idlewood Drive near the Clark Sand Pits in Pensacola, Florida. As she neared the natural conclusion of the dead-end road where a chain-link fence blocked off the old mining sediment pond, she came upon what appeared to be a blue and gray tarp 
tightly wrapped and twisted on the ends like a giant Tootsie Roll. It had been tossed into the thick underbrush about 15 feet off of the paved road. Suddenly, the woman's dog became fascinated with the object and tried desperately to move his owner toward the tarp. As the woman ventured off the road and cautiously approached the large bundle, that's when she smelled it. The unforgettable odor of death. Before proceeding any further, she called at 911. So I'm here off of, um, it's kind of a wooded area off Indlewood Drive in Escambia County. And as you can see behind me, just woods kind of everywhere. Uh, it seems to be a dumping ground. Lots of people bringing out their trash here and kind of just dumping off debris, uh, things like that. But there's also kind of some swimming holes back here. And I just spoke with a man who was passing through the area. He tells me there's three large swimming pools um, where a lot of people kind of come hang out. Some family members and kids in the area, uh, um, a lot of homeless people hang out here as well. So this is where the body was found yesterday. And I'm talking about the body of 54-year-old Charles Daniel Locke. Um, according to um, the incident report sent out by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, Locke was found out here yesterday uh, duct taped and in a tarp um, after someone had called in a report of a body. Escambia County Sheriff's deputies responded to that call and immediately cordoned off the area and secured it as a potential crime scene. As evidence technicians worked carefully to open the tightly wrapped tarp, they noticed that it was covered in flies and maggots, a telltale sign that whatever was inside was likely once living but was now dead. And that was precisely the case. Inside of the blue and gray tarp, investigators discovered the heavily decomposed and bloated remains of a man who would later be identified via fingerprint. It was 54-year-old Charles Locke, a longtime Pensacola resident who lived just three miles up the street at 303 Frisco Road. His hands had been tightly bound with duct tape behind his back, and his feet had also been taped together. But something that appeared curious early on to investigators was that his mouth and nose had also been covered by duct tape, but it hadn't just been placed over his mouth. Whoever killed Charles Locke had taken the roll and wrapped it all the way around his head several times, until it completely obscured both his mouth and nose. And though this particular desolate stretch of Idlewood Road was a known place for dumping trash and, at times, criminal activity, detectives noticed something that seemed a bit out of place right in the middle of the road near where Charles Locke's body had been dumped. It was a large scrap piece of sheetrock laying with the white paper side face up and clearly imprinted on the face, a single black tire imprint from where someone had apparently run it over, along with a single faint boot print. Near the apparently fresh construction material in the middle of the road, detectives also found several pieces of what appeared to be some type of dark orange twine or nylon rope, rope that still had the manufacturer's sheen to it and showed zero signs of wear or weathering. I'm sure the rope and sheetrock were equally out of place, but detectives also found a piece of tile backer board with a distinct tile remnant attached from a recent kitchen or bath remodeling job. Could it actually be that whoever killed Charles Locke and absentmindedly left all of these clues behind at the very scene where they had dumped his body. The answers would come soon enough, but first, homicide detectives made their way to 303 Frisco Road, to Charles Locke's primary residence. 
Within the first few minutes of arriving later on the morning of May 23rd, it was clear that Charles Locke had been living the life of a recluse and was someone who largely kept to himself. His small home was surrounded by a waist-high chain-link fence, and the entire property run down and overgrown with massive trees and thick underbrush. It was a wonder anyone could make it in or out of the property, let alone that someone actually lived there. Detectives attempted to make contact with anyone who might have been inside the home, but after several attempts at the door, there was no response. While waiting out front for the appropriate clearance to search the property, homicide detectives spotted something on the boulevard right smack dab in the middle of the property line between 303 and 305 Frisco Road. It was a large trash can with no lid, and it was overflowing with construction debris. Detectives made their way to the can for a closer look and, within seconds, identified scrap pieces of sheetrock matching the very brand and type that were discovered back at the crime scene, along with a roll of the exact same style dark orange nylon rope that was discovered near Charles Locke's body. Detectives were unsure whether the trash can belonged to Charles or his neighbor, so they knocked at the neighbor's door. The homeowner, 44-year-old Calvin Allison, answered the door. He had just abruptly returned home from work at a nearby utility company after hearing about his neighbor's untimely death and was still wearing a dirty pair of blue jeans, steel work-toe boots, a neon yellow high-vis t-shirt, and a camouflage baseball cap with a pair of sunglasses perched atop the brim. He explained that the trash can on the boulevard was his and that it contained various scrap construction materials from recent projects that he and his wife had been working on around their house over the past few months. The admission was enough to inspire an invitation down to the Escambia County Sheriff's Department headquarters for an interview, an invitation Calvin Allison happily agreed to. What he didn't know at the time is that his admission, along with the material clearly observable from his front curb, were facilitating an expedited search warrant for both his and Charles Locke's properties. So investigators came out here and then um, some evidence left here at the scene um, was found um, at Charles Daniel Locke's neighbor's house, which that scene is just about three to five miles from here on Frisco Road, also in Escambia County. So when investigators basically went to Mr. Locke's house, they noticed some evidence tying his next door neighbor to this crime scene here on Indlewood Drive. Um, I'm not sure if that would have been a tarp or tape or something like that, but it definitely tied the next door neighbor to this crime scene. This episode is proudly brought to you by Every Plate. Hey guys, am I the only one noticing the ridiculous prices at the grocery store, like that single stick of summer sausage for $19.99? Yeah, that's real. But what if I told you you could get the same deliciousness as some of the other more expensive meal kits with Every Plate? Look, if you're looking to budget your food expenses ahead of summer, get the most bang for your buck with America's best value meal kit, Every Plate, where Every Plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. And with no hidden fees, you can count on great value week after week after week. And you only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. And if you have a growing family, you can even explore their big batch faves. Every Plate's new selection of hearty meals that are perfect for big gatherings. 
Even the crowd favorites like Every Plate's Tex-Mex Black Bean Chili or their Beef Bolognese at double the serving size. So you can cook once, feed the entire crew, or eat twice and enjoy more for less. And with 26 tasty recipes available each week, you can even customize Every Plate meals to your liking by swapping out proteins and sides or adding extra veggie dishes. You guys, I love Every Plate because they're the more affordable meal kit and I can take the time and money saved to be with my family. Get started with Every Plate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code invisible149. That's everyplate.com slash podcast and enter code invisible149 to get started for just $1.49 per meal. This episode is also proudly brought to you by StoryWorth. Hey, did I ever tell you about the time I interviewed my dad shortly before he passed away and got the secret to his sultry singing voice? Yeah, according to him, he would eat two handfuls of potato chips before every performance. That was his little secret. And though most vocal coaches would probably disagree with that advice, it was neat to learn something new about my dad. So if you're looking for a truly unique, amazing gift to give your dad or father figure this year for Father's Day, consider StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved one preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a thought-provoking question of your choice from the vast pool of options or self-created ones. These are questions you may have never heard of or had the chance to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one full year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved one's stories, including photographs, into a beautiful keepsake memory book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. I love StoryWorth. I've already given this gift to my mother-in-law, and this year for Father's Day, I'm sending it to my father-in-law so that we can capture his amazing stories for our children. Give all the dads in your life a unique, meaningful gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash invisible. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash invisible to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash invisible. Calvin Allison sits in the Escambia County Sheriff's Department interview room two at just after 5 p.m., the evening of Thursday, May 23rd. He's been patiently waiting for Investigator Alvarez and Sergeant Barnes to arrive and doesn't yet know that teams are actively searching both his and Charles Locke's homes on Frisco Road. At 5.08 p.m., both investigators enter the small room and begin with a little small talk. Calvin explains that he works for ECUA, or the Emerald Coast Utilities Authority, providing regional services, namely fixing water leaks that are reported within their service area. Investigators ask Allison where his wife and children are, and he reveals that they all recently left town together to sign documents for his late father-in-law's estate after his death the previous year in Oklahoma. He explains that since moving the family to Escambia County, Florida back in 2015, they've made the trip back to Oklahoma at least 20 times, a drive that takes them anywhere from 11 to 14 hours, depending upon if they're going to his wife's family's place or his own. Investigator Alvarez continues the small talk with Calvin Allison, building rapport with the man and now seated in front of him. At one point, after learning a bit more about Calvin's background, he labels the quiet, gentle utility laborer as a, quote, good old hardworking southern boy. Allison has spent a great deal of time on the road quietly resolving issues for others, most recently with the water utility and prior to that with Cox Cable. While Investigator Alvarez handles most of the interaction with Calvin Allison, 
Sergeant Barnes sits quietly next to his partner, repeatedly reading and responding to one text message after another. Unbeknownst to Calvin Allison, Sergeant Barnes is in direct communication with the search teams back on Frisco Road, so he is being appraised of each new critical piece of evidence they discover in real time during their interview with Charles Locke's 44-year-old neighbor. How long have you known Charles for? Mm, we met him a little bit after we moved in. We talked to him a couple of times, but then we didn't really start talking to him until when his wife left him. And he came over and when my did, wife's... I'm sorry, when did his wife leave him, by the way? A year, year and a half ago. Okay. And his sister, Crystal, would be able to tell you everything, like the exact dates. But, you know, when you said he had strokes, after she left him, she went to Texas and took everything. He came over and was talking to Jared that was staying with us. He was a mechanic. He wanted him to look at his truck and his car. And uh, then a couple of weeks later or months later, I can't remember, he had a stroke. We didn't see him. Then he had another one. He was driving. Okay. I think he was at work yeah. driving and had the stroke. Then he had another one. And he came over and he, like, he couldn't, he's tall, real, like, he couldn't focus at all. And he's like, my sister won't go buy me any cigarettes, you know, can y'all do this for me? Like, can y'all run some errands for me? I said, if you need anything, just let us know and we'll help you out. So, you guys, so, you guys ever, from then, that's when we really started being friends. He really needed help, so. Did he come over frequently, or did you guys go over there frequently to see him, or were there certain uh, About once a week, we would take him a plate if we cooked out, mm -hmm. but he would come over sometimes to sit down. He came over for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. We came over. Anytime we cooked out, I mean, he didn't want to, we could watch the football games, we'd have big cookouts, but he didn't want to watch sports. He just came for the food and, and for company, you know. Calvin explains that he has known Charles personally for about the past two years and that Charles Locke has lived in his home for several years, well over a decade as far as he can recall. His neighbor Charles is 10 years Calvin Sr. and the two only really connected after Charles's wife had abruptly left him the year before. In the months that followed the divorce, Charles Locke suffered a major stroke, one that left him physically disabled and caused him great difficulty with speaking. His neighbor Calvin and Calvin's wife Wendy befriended their neighbor who was clearly down on his luck and took to looking after him. When was the last time you had seen Charles? Sunday night when I took him to play to a pork chop dinner. We cooked on the grill. You ever go inside of his home at any point? Yeah, I went in that hunt. Uh, when his wife was with him, had you ever been in there? No, we didn't okay. know him when his wife was there. Okay, gotcha. I was just curious. Other than we talked to him, they used to have pit bulls and... We were scared. We didn't know if they could jump the fence or not. So mm -hmm. my wife went over and talked to him. And then as she left not too long later. Okay. So the last time you saw Mr. Charles was Sunday night? Yes, sir. And uh, you said you remember earlier you telling me that you were bar out barbecuing and you guys cooked out and you brought a plate over. So pretty much. How did Charles seem that night? The same. I mean, just sitting in his house. Same old Charles. You know, he just... Kind of sit like this, you know, talk to you. Kind of like a, like Sling Blade. It's like talking to Sling Blade a little bit, you know. <laughs> so they call, they call me Sling Blade at work because I got the, uh, uh, you know, if I yank my pants all the way up, I need to like, one of these days. Like this? Yeah. You got the eyes on me? Yeah. Apparently I look like uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. The shaved head. I'm gonna, one of these days I'm going to come into work with all my crap. I'm going to wrap it in the belt. I'm going to see if anybody notices. Biscuits, <laughs> and, <laughs> biscuits and mustard. Mm -hmm. Mustard. <laughs> 
Investigator Alvarez jokes with Kelvin, and the two share a laugh momentarily at a dead man's expense. Crude, yes, but Investigator Alvarez is feeling Kelvin out, carefully mirroring his body and verbal language very closely. Kelvin explains that he hasn't seen Charles since Sunday evening, which would have been May 19th. Today is the 23rd, so it has effectively been four long days since he last shared company with his neighbor, a man who apparently kept up the inside of his home about as well as he had the overrun and unkempt exterior. Uh, do you notice anything weird inside of his home or anything like that or anything out of the ordinary? Dirty. I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, say that again. <laughs> so. Smelled bad. I mean, you could tell the dog's peeing and pooping in the house. Yeah. Was the dog there? Yeah, Cookie was there. Okay. And where's Cookie usually kept at? In the house. I mean, like, in the house. You know, where like, specifically does just, like, Cookie run around wherever? It runs nuts. Okay. And, uh, did he have any guests over that night? Not while I was there. Okay. And I remember you, we had a previous conversation. You had said that there was a truck that was over there. I'm not sure. Was that every once in a while? I've seen it there a couple of times. But I just know it's his guy friend. He drives a white, and I'm not sure if it's a Ford or Chevy, but it's an older truck. Okay, so it's an older truck. And yeah. What color is it? White. It's a white older truck. And uh, you've never seen this individual at all? No, sir. How often is that truck over there? No, not a lot. Not a lot? So every once in a while. Yeah. Has uh, Charles ever talked about them? Just a, just a little bit. What does he say about that guy? I'm trying to buy pot for him. Oh, really? Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Investigator Alvarez is trying to nail down a timeline because detectives back at Charles Locke's home have uncovered two large pools of blood in his house. Pools that are large enough, they believe he was likely murdered there inside of his own home. They're also trying to nail down who the owner of this mysterious white pickup truck might be. Remember, they found truck tire imprints back at the crime scene on the piece of scrap sheetrock. Kelvin claims that the mystery man had been visiting with Charles and that he had asked him to procure a, quote, large amount of pot. And Charles, in turn, reached out to Kelvin and his wife because he got his pot from them. Kelvin explains that they supplied Charles's pot to help with his stress from the divorce and the physical disabilities that came after having two strokes. Investigator Alvarez asks Kelvin if he ever noticed Charles leaving the house after Sunday night, to which Calvin responds that no, he had not. But Calvin explains that he's only home and alert to his surroundings at best a few hours per day. You see, over the past month or so, he's left home at about 6.30 every morning to take his kids to school. He then returns home, takes a nap, and then slowly begins getting ready for his evening shift at ECUA. Beyond Charles Locke's typical morning routine of taking his dog Cookie to a nearby dog park, Calvin rarely sees him leave the house, and since Sunday, he hasn't noticed any movement or activity whatsoever over at his neighbor's property. So, uh, back on what we were saying, though, so Sunday night you see him, you guys brought food over, you went to his house, yes, sir. and uh, how long were you there for? Ten minutes, Ten minutes. five minutes. Did your wife go away yet, or just you? Just me. Okay. Wife was next door, uh, Cassie was there on the phone with her. So. Cassie was with your wife. Yes. Okay. okay. So what time was this about approximately that you brought it over? Like five something maybe. So five. Four, five, I don't know. I took in that food and then me and my wife went and met Daryl McCory and his girlfriend Jackie and we went down to Sam's Club or Sam's Lounge mm -hmm. and was there for a few hours. 
Okay, so right afterwards, you went over to Sam's Club or yes. lounge? After Calvin brought his ailing neighbor a plate of food on Sunday night, he, his wife, and two others went out to Sam's Lounge. Not to be confused with Sam's Club and their famous $1.38 hot dog combo. Sam's Lounge was a cocktail bar in Pensacola, about a five-minute drive from their house. They picked up their friend Daryl and the new girl that he was dating. Calvin explains that the four of them went out for about three hours and that he returned home sometime around 9 or 10 o'clock that evening. And you guys got home about 9 o'clock. Uh, I know you're drinking a bit probably. I'm not sure how much you had or anything like that, but uh, was uh, Charles' truck outside or anything like that? It was there. Okay. Did you see any lights on or anything? Uh, it's house is the normal. You know, sometimes the porch light's on, sometimes it's not. Yeah, and otherwise it's kind of it's covered in art. Yeah, <laughs> covered in plants. Trees, a forest. Uh, next day, Monday morning, uh, what do you remember from the first time you woke up? I got up and took my kids to school. Okay. Same thing. And did you Charles truck out there? Uh, maybe it was there. You don't remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm trying to make you go back in your yeah. memory, and sometimes it's a little difficult. Uh, so you don't recall if his truck was there or not? Uh, did anything seem out of the ordinary, Charles' residence? Same. I mean, it's you see how it is. It's hard to see. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like a fortress almost, with jungle around it. Why did he ever fix any of that crap or do anything? Know. Cut it down? Uh, I ain't been on the inside. Does it need work on the inside? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, like walls that torn down and all kind of crap? I mean, the walls are, I mean, I don't know how they're held up, but it smells bad, mm-hmm. dirty. Mm-hmm. Did he ever ask you to do any work over there or anything like that? Because uh, I know he's obviously, you know, probably handy. Have me, me look at his cable. He asked me, is there any way you can hook the cable TV back up? I'm like, well, we're out of box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody always asks me, hey, man, can I turn my cable back on? Well, I can hook it up. You ain't getting nothing. <laughs> if you listen carefully, Detective Barnes chimes in briefly. Remember, he has been in near constant contact with the teams searching both the Locke and Allison homes on Frisco Road. He lightly inquires as to whether or not Charles had ever asked Calvin to patch any walls or do any repairs on his rundown property. But Sergeant Barnes doesn't give a shit about the extent of their so-called friendship. He's trying to get Calvin to shift gears and talk about any recent renovation or construction projects he may have been a part of. One that might have required a little, I don't know, sheetrock, perhaps? But Calvin redirects the conversation, explaining that though he has attempted to help Charles with his internet and cable issues in the past, he's definitely not any sort of handyman and isn't capable of making any substantial repairs on Charles's rundown home, or his own for that matter. Uh, do you, this might be an odd question. Uh, do you sleep a real heavy, or do you sleep a pretty light sleeper? Uh, I'm a pretty light sleeper. I hear everything in the house. Well, between uh, Sunday night and Tuesday morning, do you did you hear anything outside that might have been weird, something that might have woken you up and that you just disacknowledged as being just, you know, outside? Well, Sunday night... I I drank a lot. Yeah, I got completely understand. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, why we, that's why we came home. Well, we came home. Uh, Daryl's girlfriend, she was being mean, and so we came home. And then, but like like I say, I hear everything. I hear everything in the house. Someone gets up and walking around the house, I hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone's around like our window or something, I would wake up. But like out in the streets or something. It had to be very loud for me to wake up. And you didn't hear anything like that? No, sir. Uh, does uh, Cookie bark a lot? 
Mm. I mean, if you came up to the porch, she does, but... She's not, does he put her out back a lot, or is she mostly in the no, house? No, she could jump the fence. Okay, so she he, he didn't use the backyard for Yeah, if you see uh, in our backyard, there's like holes in the vines that's grown up. Yeah. That's where she porched through. Okay, I got you, I got you. Because uh, we woke up and she was in our backyard. Apart from waking up and finding Charles's dog, Cookie, in their backyard... Kelvin claims he didn't see or hear anything from Charles from Sunday evening on. He claims during his interview, though, that his wife last reported seeing Charles sometime on Monday morning. Kelvin's wife then took their two children and left on the long drive to Oklahoma late in the afternoon on Tuesday to settle her late father's estate, leaving Kelvin alone for the last two days or so. He claimed to detectives during his interview that he basically stuck to his usual routine— On Wednesday, he went into town to pay his water bill and, after returning home, did a little yard work in the back. But nothing out of the ordinary, at least not according to Calvin. So, you paid the water bill Wednesday. Uh, Did you do any work around the house or anything like that? Not much. Moved, uh, you see this one I'm pulling in the backyard. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to get rid of that, too. (laughs) I'm telling you, man. You see how far I got it? We're... Where it's all there, you know, out there in the back where the, the grass hasn't grown. I've tried watering and raking, and it's just sand. It's not ever going to grow. And I got it. I got it all the way to that corner right there, and that's about as far. I just got to... Got to cut it down and break it down. It's I'm just going to throw it over, and I'm going to get on Facebook. And I'm going <laughs> to go pick it up. I've done it. I've yeah. been looking. Need yard work. Who does leaves and haul-offs? Everybody says they do it, but then when you message them, they don't ever show up. All right, so a couple of things here. First off, Calvin is absolutely right about the Facebook Marketplace quip. People rarely show up when they say they will, or they incessantly ask if an item is still available for sale with no further dialogue. But apart from his witty banter with Investigator Alvarez, Calvin's explanation for the obvious yard work that occurred in his backyard doesn't actually make any practical sense. He claims that after taking down and moving an old above-ground pool on Wednesday, he tried getting his grass to grow by flooding the bare spot with a garden hose and then breaking at it. Now, he did say before that he wasn't handy, but have you ever heard of anyone trying to get grass to grow by simply watering and raking dirt? Yeah, me neither. It turns out he was missing one key ingredient, grass seed. But detectives already had another theory a theory that might help explain what would possibly drive a man to hose down his bare backyard and aggressively rake up the soil. That's because he wasn't trying to plant grass at all. He was trying to get rid of trace evidence from a murder. In the precise spot, he meticulously prepared a Charles Locke's body to be transported off-site and dumped at the Clark Sandpits. This episode is proudly brought to you by BASE. All right, my wife probably should have played for the Green Bay Packers. She is a textbooked overpacker. That's why I'm so glad I finally found travel bags and luggage. I can keep up with her, shall we say, sensibilities. Base is an overpacker's dream. With Base, there's actually room for everything. 15 pairs of underwear for a weekend trip, no problem. Trying to decide which couple of pairs of shoes to bring, why not bring them all with Base? Base was created by actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. And they've thought of everything you could ever want in a single piece of luggage. 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushion handle, built-in weight indicator, and even washable bags for your dirty clothes. And all of the interior pockets you'd ever need to keep organized. 
Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips, the Weekender bag is super functional and even has a place to store your shoes separately. I got the base Weekender bag a couple of months ago now, and I absolutely love it because not only is it the perfect carry-on, it also has a trolley sleeve built into the side, so it fits over your suitcase handle and becomes instantly stackable. So, whether you're packing for a quick trip or looking to breeze through the security line, Base has your personal items covered. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash invisible. Go to basetravel.com slash invisible for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash invisible. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. As parents, most of us understand that the most important thing in life is to meet our children's basic needs and to give them everything they need not only to survive, but to thrive and grow into happy, healthy adults. But their needs continue to exist whether we're here or not. So we also need to think about giving them everything they need to thrive in the future. I know about this firsthand because my dad was only 51 when he died. And believe me, he wasn't planning to leave any of us anytime soon, but he did. He also had life insurance to make sure his death didn't become an additional burden on the family when we were all grieving his loss. Help protect your family's future with term life insurance from Fabric by Gerber Life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. With Fabric's newer low prices, it could potentially mean significant savings over other providers. With great quality policies like a million dollars in coverage, for less than a dollar a day. Life insurance gets a bad rap sometimes for being overly complicated, but Fabric makes it easy to apply with its seamless digital experience. It's all online and it's on your time. And if you need extra support, Fabric's team of licensed insurance agents can answer questions along the way. So protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com invisible. That's meetfabric.com invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. After leaving the interrogation room momentarily, Sergeant Barnes returns with a cup of coffee and graciously offers it to Kelvin Allison when he casually notices something. You might want coffee. I made some coffee. No, I don't want. You have some sure. And uh, what you got, man? Some Marriott boots? Yes, sir. I hear you. One of my favorite. I got a pair just like. Well, you know our ECUA says you know they will furnish boots for us, but here's what they do. They give you a stipend, a little money. Uh, they give you a piece of paper, and they let me go down to the boot store and they Which let me one? check. Is it uh, they pick it on twenty nine? Oh, okay. Right down from Walmart. Oh, that Red Wings or Wing or whatever. Not Red Wing. It's uh, in that little bitty shopping center. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I like it. So we take the paper in there and we pick out what we want and then we select do we want it taken all out of one check (laughs) (laughs) or they can take it out in four paychecks. What? That's shitty. So you think they're paying for it, but you pay for it. That's what I thought at first. And I was in there and and the guy that was already working with me, I said, man, these are nice. 300 bucks, man, I can't believe they're going to let us get us there. He goes, hey, you got to pay for them. What? Oh, I'll take them 169s. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be stepping in sewer and water anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. I got to wear a steel toe. You, you don't have to. But, I mean, it's not a big price difference. Might as well have one in case of. I can't tell them you're steel toe or they just like, yes, not steel toe. See, where the. Yeah, where it's starting to rip off there. That's from uh, the water. When it, you don't have time, sometimes put your rubber boots on. Mm hmm. 
You gotta get down in there. You got Gore-Tex on those? What? You know Gore-Tex, the waterproofing? No, I just nice, man. I'll tell you right now. You gotta look into it, okay? Like, these ones, I can stand all the way up to my freaking... All the way up to the top of them. I'm just fixing out to get some more. These things, if I take them off, y'all will pass out in here. Oh, don't do that, man. They are rough. Don't do that. The guy we're working with, uh, Kendall Tuesday night, he goes, Dude, your feet stink bad. Because I had them sitting like... I, I sit like this a lot. He's like, I can put your foot down, man. Get away from air conditioner. You're yeah. killing me. Yeah. <laughs> back in. What at first seems a relatively innocent observation by Sergeant Barnes is actually an active fishing expedition. See, he had received confirmation from evidence texts that the single faint boot print captured on the scrap piece of sheetrock at the crime scene where Charles Locke's body had been crudely dumped was an Ariat brand men's steel toe work boot and Calvin Allison falls for the bit hook, line, and sinker. Not only does Calvin tell them where he bought the boots, he explains that his co-worker made a comment just the other night, in fact, about how much they stink, and how he was, quote, fixing to get a new pair as a result. In fact, according to Calvin, his work boots smell so damn bad, if he were to take them off right there in the sheriff's department interview room, they would literally pass out. After briefly tricking Calvin Allison into confirming that the very boots on his feet match the boot print left at one of two crime scenes, they move on to confirm the rest of his activity throughout Wednesday afternoon and into early Thursday. And that's when Calvin casually mentions that he made not one, but two trips to two separate Walmart stores in just the past 24 hours alone. And then today, did you, when you came home, do anything fancy? Did you work on the house at all? Uh, put some clothes in a washer and a dryer. Okay. Took a shower, got up, went to Walmart again, got the, what is the thing, things that you put the uh, essential oils in. Oh, diffuser. Yeah, got one of those from my wife. That, On Wednesday? Today. That her okay. sister sent me a message saying you had to get this. So we got that. Got Which me, Walmart you got to? That one was at Navy. And then I left a little early to go to work because she wanted some of those... Uh, what are they called? Camis? The shirts that have the little spaghetti straps? Camisole or whatever. You can't, yeah, whatever those are. The Walmart over here in Navy only had two colors in her size. So I said, well, that Walmart on Kimstrand mm-hmm. is over by work. I'll stop by there and look. I got her a couple of those. I got two pairs of shorts and a shirt. And I got me some chicken strips. And, and what, what Walmart was it? The one on Kimstrand. I thought you went to the Walmart on Creighton. Oh, Creighton. That's it, right? Yeah. That's the one by work. I'm sorry, not Kim's fan, Creighton. Okay. Near 9th Avenue. Yes, sir. That's where you got, I'm sorry, where'd you get that? Where'd you get out that one? I got my lunch, and I got two pairs of shorts, a shirt, and a couple of camis. Having already confirmed the obvious, that Calvin Allison was the last known person to see his neighbor Charles Locke alive, they confront him with the inevitable, as he has not once asked why he was detained or what they want to question him about even though he has already given them more than enough to arrest him on suspicion of murder. Uh, first things first, that's really important to us. Uh, the Obviously, you know something happened to Charles, okay? Did your uh, wife tell you? Yeah, did she tell you? My wife told me, yeah. yes. So you're, you're aware that... Yes, that's why I came home. He's deceased, obviously. Yes. yes. Uh, there, his death, obviously, in this situation, there was foul play, okay? The, uh, we, we see some stuff out here. We had some questions. Like I said, we're walking the property. Maybe you can help us enlighten some of the questions and give us some answers from some stuff out there. Uh, we noticed that uh, there's trash that's littered between both properties. Okay? That's particularly one of the reasons why we thought, you know, we came out there talking yes, to you a bit. 
Uh, you said you're re-renovating inside your bathroom, correct? Yeah, we were two months ago. That's as far as we've gotten. What are you doing in your bathroom? The uh, I went. To, I was taking a shower and I went to turn the handle, and then water just started shooting out the wall. Okay. So we had to replace all that inside. That's what's in that trash can. Is all that. When we started taking the the tile down, we thought there was sheetrock behind it. It was a uh, two and a half inches of mortar. That's what they used to level the wall. So you when had we to bust went, that out, hmm? you bust it out, or right. no, you ain't touched it. Well, I did it. <laughs> All righty. Well, hey, she sent me a video. She was in there just a banging away. Calvin confirms that the garbage can with the sheetrock and other construction scraps on the front boulevard between his and Charles's houses does, in fact, belong to him. And the sheetrock that matches the panel found at the crime scene, also his. But he also mentions that his wife had demolished their bathroom after it had sprung a leak in the plumbing behind the wall and that as a result, they had to tear out all of the old tile from the shower surround. The very same distinct tile that detectives found at the Clark Sand Pits earlier that day. He tells investigators that they have already finished re-sheetrocking the bathroom after the plumbing issue, and that they've kept scrap pieces of sheetrock all over the property, just in case something goes wrong in the future. There are literally scraps in his garage, in the house, in the garbage can in the front yard, and even strewn about in the backyard. But if that weren't already more than enough confirmation that Calvin had something to do with murdering Charles Locke, there was one more thing, that unique orange nylon robe. What about the, uh, there's uh, some strips out there that are in both properties, they're like the little orange tags, you know, a lot of times you see them like hay bales and stuff like that. Uh, have you been doing any gardening work? I know Charles did some gardening work. Did, did you ever see him with that or anything like that? Or have you done any? I'm not sure what you're talking about orange tags. They're, it's like twine. Twine. You know, the, the, have you ever picked up a, a bale, a bay of hail? Yeah. Mean, hail. Uh, bay of... Yeah, I know what's talking about. A bale of hay, Chief. Pine straw is the word I was looking for. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about now, like twine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. twine. And no, you know, time up in the square. So. I haven't used any of that. Okay, uh, we, there was some out by the trash down there. I didn't know if you put that there or who put that there or where that came from. Uh, there's garbage all down there, but it's it's not ours. Okay, so it's not your stuff. And uh, mind you, there's like, the reason we brought that up was because there's some near the street rock as well. You know what I mean? And like I said, our biggest thing we look at for an issue when we go there is, you know, trash and anything else, what's going on, you know, what we can see from the scene. We're just trying to piece everything together, you know, whether he had somebody working on his place or not, you know. He... He hasn't had anybody working on his place. Now, uh, the stuff in the garbage can, the, the tile that's been busted out, that's yours. Yes. That's by the road. Yeah, that's oh. been there for two months. All right. Okay. Investigator Alvarez asks Calvin if Charles had ever helped him or his wife with any of their renovation projects. See if there might be a good reason why Charles would have those exact construction materials with him or in his possession at the time his body was dumped in the ditch off Idlewood Road just hours before. But he has not. Though all of the evidence gathered by that point clearly points to Calvin Allison's involvement in one capacity or another, detectives do not yet have a motive. So they're still actively trying to figure out the why behind Charles Locke's murder. You ever borrowed any money from him? Borrowed money from him? Mm-hmm. He loaned me some money in January when he got a little bit, he got a little money for a disability. He loaned me some money to help pay the electric bill. How much uh, did he borrow? Did you borrow from him? It was two hundred and eighty. Two hundred and eighty dollars. Uh, kind of a weird thing that was brought up. 
And uh, we heard this from a neighbor, so maybe you can add to this since you saw Charles frequently. Uh, did uh, Charles's vehicle was broken into? Did you ever hear about that? Yes, he came over our house, said that his wallet was stolen. Okay. And uh, did he ever say about anything that might have happened with the wallet? Did anybody use any of his cards or money? He said that he thought someone had used it, but he canceled the card and he was using his checks. Okay. So he was using the checks? Yes, sir. Okay. So none of his cards were in there. How, how recent was this? Because we don't really have a time frame. About a month ago. About a month ago. Investigator Alvarez also mentions another incident where someone had allegedly vandalized Charles Locke's truck, an incident which left his truck tires slashed. Despite the close proximity to his neighbor and having just brought him a plate of food that Sunday night, Calvin claims he was unaware of this other alleged incident, but does suddenly admit to detectives that he does have a spare set of keys to Charles Locke's truck, along with one of Charles's checkbooks. But according to Calvin, there's a good explanation for why those items are in his possession, because Charles gave them to him. In the event that someone ever stole his wallet or keys again, he simply wanted to keep a spare set with his trusty neighbor. Hmm, I'm beginning to smell a little bit of bullshit, and I don't think it's emanating from Calvin Allison's Ariat brand steel toe boots, if you get my drift. Sergeant Barnes has had enough, and begins pressing the 44-year-old to see if he'll crack, because it appears there's more to Calvin Allison's story than he has been letting on. Calvin, I want you to make one thing very clear to you, all right? We don't pull no punches. We don't pull shit. All right, listen, just hear me out, okay? We do our homework before yes, we come in here. You don't have no criminal history. All right, the last thing you want to be painted as is a monster because the only thing we leave in this world is our legacy, right? Yes, sir. No matter what you have, it's our legacy. Yes, sir. And no matter what you did, how you did it, or whatever, your children, at least your children, I can't speak for your wife, but your children, are always going to love you. Yes, sir. No matter what. All right? Everything we do is videotaped. There's no secret about that. Okay? So, this is whether Calvin is this heinous monster. Okay? That they look at as a killer. Okay? Or, we know what kind of lifestyle he was into. Did something go wrong and then something went bad and you had to take care of something and, and do something? Listen, hear me out, okay? Hear me out. Because if that's what happened, then that's what happened. Because honesty, even though you think not honesty, will get you so much further than sitting here on this tape. Because if you go to jail, if you go to jail for this murder, okay, there won't be another chance except on the day of trial, okay. for them to see who and what you are. It's at this point in the interrogation when Sergeant Barnes confronts this good old Southern boy with new evidence. Evidence that not only connects Calvin Allison to Charles Locke's death, but that actually places him at the crime scene where Charles's body was dumped. We go back to the things that we found at the scene. Ask you about your boots, okay? We have your boot print at the scene, okay? We have your car tires at the scene. We have the tarp in the trash can, what it was bought in, at your house. The sheetrock that is at the scene, okay? The same UPC code is on your front porch, Chief. You with me? 
Yes, sir. So now is the time. You have children in a family to so save face and be a man. I didn't do anything. Well, then explain it away. You tell me, tell me, all right, you don't say you didn't do anything. You explain to me how did Calvin Allison's boot print get there at the scene? Because we have your truck. We're seizing your truck, okay? We are in your house as we speak. We see where he was dragged from the house and back through the yard. He raked your yard in the last couple of days, okay? We're at your house now. We don't miss nothing, okay? So you tell me, how does your boot print get out there at the scene? How does your tire, your left front tire, because you have four different tires on that truck, your left front tire is cupped, okay? You know what that is, right? Cupped. All right, it's when you ran over the sheetrock, all right, it left uh, the black tire marks on there that matches your tire. Then that brown piece of, of facing boarding, okay, that you use to repair your shower with in this photo right here, right there, the board, that's there at the scene also with the same tile on it. Now, either you got some shitty fucking luck, okay? So I didn't I didn't do it. I, who did it? I, I can't tell you, but no. I didn't do it. You were there. I wasn't there. Calvin. I've been at work and was... Calvin, listen, okay? Remember what he said, okay? This is an opportunity for you to explain and let us help us Just figure out what's going on. This doesn't disappear. And this is the type of thing that, like you said, do you want to go out with your children thinking that you're a monster? Or do you want to go out to say that we owned up and you want to tell us what happened over there? Well, I didn't do anything, so, I mean, I didn't do it. Despite now being faced with the barrage of physical and circumstantial evidence concretely connecting him to the scene of Charles's murder and the location where his body was eventually dumped, Calvin Allison continues denying having anything to do with his neighbor's murder. Then, Sergeant Barnes offers him a lifeline of sorts, a possible explanation that involves some type of semi-justifiable path to a future self-defense claim, because detectives found something else out about Kelvin's reclusive neighbor Charles after thoroughly searching his Frisco Road home. The man had a secret. I think you're a good person. I think you're a family man, and I think Charles has helped y'all out at some point in time, just as y'all's helped him, all right? But Charles has a, a little uh, fetish that a lot of people don't know about. You know, you can't miss it because if you walk in his house, can't miss it. He's a cross-dresser. Got fake boobs, got dresses, got all kinds of stuff. I think Charles come on to you no. and shit went bad. If that's the case, I can buy that. And if shit went bad and you got a guy that has homosexual tendencies and you're not a homosexual and he puts his hand on you. That never happened. Okay, then, then I, man, I'm telling you, I'm all ears, I'll take notes. You tell me. You need to know what happened. You tell me, how did all the things I just showed you, I've showed you some of my cards. Okay, duct tape, that duct tape, that's going to seal the fate because of the way duct tape is. Okay, so you tell me then how all those items I just laid out to you got there five feet away from the body. I'm listening. I'm listening. Sir, I don't know. I mean, Calvin, like, like I said, those, those straps, those ties to, guess what? Two of them on the body. Okay? Two of them on you. I mean, we have two or three on your property. Okay? 
But you just Maybe said they were on his property too. So, I mean, I don't know what strats or what ties you're talking about. Well, I'll show them to you. Just but, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the least. That's the least of it. That's exactly. the least. What we want to know is what happened. We need a story, Calvin. Did somebody borrow your boots? No. Okay. Where, where, where did this happen? Where do you think it happened? I don't know. You said it was in his house. What was in his house? You just said he was drugged out of his house. I said you could see where he was drugged through the yard and you raked your yard because he was drugged out the back. And it looks okay, like that's what you just said. Right. Did you not rake your yard? Yes, I told him. I've been cleaning you the never told up. him. You never told me you were raking that? your yard. Yes, I did. At the very first, when we asked about the, when I told you about the pool and I said, I've been raking and, and watering and the grass isn't growing. You told me there was a, pot, a part in the back that doesn't grow, but you never told me you're raking. You said you just moved that thing, moved the top, I mean, the pool yeah, over. Yeah, and, and I said, I've been raking and watering and I can't get the grass to grow. Yeah. Remember, Calvin was watering and raking dirt in his backyard, a.k.a. mud, and wondering why his grass wouldn't grow. The evidence they have gathered in just a few hours against this man is overwhelming to say the least. But at what point does someone just crack under the pressure and tell the truth? Sergeant Barnes tries a new tactic. He begins showing Calvin Allison the photographs detectives on scene have been sending him all along during their interview. Photographs of the evidence and even of Charles Locke's badly decomposed body to see if it will get him to crack just enough that his entire house of cards will come crashing down. You just, you're just, you just kill people? I don't kill people. I didn't do it. Who did it then? I you let somebody know, borrow your boots and you let somebody borrow your truck? I'll show you right there. There's your boot print. Right there. Let me see the bottom of your boots. Yeah, that's your boot print right there. And where is right, this at? Right there. That's at the scene where the body's found. You want to show him a picture of the body? Yeah, I'll show him a picture of the I got body right now. Here you go, Calvin. This is what Charles looks like today. That's mm -hmm. what decom decomposition does. Calvin, would you want your family found like that? No. Sister can't even have a funeral for him because he can't be, uh, can't have open casket. They'd have a funeral, but no open casket. Did he make a pass at you? No, sir. Calvin, you need to help us understand what happened out there, because I know you know more about it. Out where? Out where are you talking about? You just keep saying the scene. Uh, uh, you don't know? No. You don't? Okay. You do know that I don't know what's in your phones yet, but your phones that are in the truck, you know we take those, all right, and we shall download them. No matter what you've deleted, we can still pull it. There's a thing called historical location. And geolocations. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, I, I mean, I don't have anything to hide from you. Right off of Idle, on Idlewood, dead end of Idlewood. You know where, where that pond is? Idlewood? You know where Idlewood's at. You know where you were UA, bro. You know. Yeah, I was there with Kendall at the end of Idlewood. And it's got a big gate that says, do not enter here. Other side of Idlewood. No, we went to the end of Idlewood, and there's a big gate, there's, and there's it says contaminated. Way. There's we got different places on. you can access it. You can access it off of W Street. You can access it off of Jackson Street, and you can access it off of Citrus Street. Mm -hmm. Well, we were there for a leak at the corner of Idlewood when? this week, just a couple of days ago. Call them and ask them. What's his number? 
Call and ask each way. What's Kendall's number? It's in my phone. Okay. Sergeant Barnes storms out of the interrogation room while Calvin continues describing in detail how at the other end of the very road where Charles Locke's body was discovered, he and his work partner Kendall responded to a call of a leaky fire hydrant just two days before. It explains that he was never at the other end of that road on the dead-end side where the body was, explaining that that was why his phone's GPS would place him in that exact area. It was a simple, innocent work call. With a harder charging Sergeant Barnes now out of the room, Investigator Alvarez leans in and gently places his fist on Calvin Allison's knee, appealing to his emotional side. He sees at one point that Calvin has crossed his arms and legs and is now actively avoiding eye contact and is simply staring blankly at the wall to his left. It's his opportunity, as one fellow good old Southern boy to another, to get to Calvin Allison to talk. And surprisingly, the gentler, kinder approach actually works. We're in a bad situation, buddy. Charles, I know, had some weird habits and stuff. I need to know, did it have anything to do with that? No, listen here, boss, okay? Calvin, look at me. Tell me what happened, buddy. I ain't here to fucking mess you up or anything, man. I need to know what happened over there. Try to kiss me. Try to kiss you. Grab me. And I'm pushing down. I don't think he hit his head on it. I don't know what it was. The blood was coming out. It's okay, Calvin. No, it's not okay. Look at me. Calvin. Calvin. Boss, look at me. I need your side of the the store, so he tried to kiss you. So he came on to you. He hit his head. He started bleeding. I didn't know what to do. Just got nervous. Embarrassed. Why would he do that to me? Calvin Allison finally breaks down, admitting to Investigator Alvarez that the altercation took place on Sunday evening when he brought a plate of food over to Charles before a night out on the town drinking with friends. He claims that as he was setting the plate down there in Charles's kitchen, Charles approached him from the living room, grabbed him by the neck, leaned in, and tried to kiss him. And that in an impulsive instant, he violently pushed him away, and that Charles fell back and hit his head, possibly on the coffee table, and effectively bled out there on his living room floor. He would then go on to claim that Charles suddenly began making a gurgling, choking noise, and that he abruptly left the house in a state of panic. He retreated back to his own home, where he went straight to the bathroom and washed his hands. For what reason, he didn't say but he explains to Investigator Alvarez that after doing so, he then sat on the bathroom floor for 10 long minutes replaying everything that had transpired in his mind before heading out to the bar that Sunday evening where he got, quote, really, really drunk to try to forget what happened. There's only one problem with that story. It's complete and utter horseshit. And if you believe a word Calvin Allison says, well then, get your garden hoses and rakes, because we're going to grow some grass down at the La Brea Tar Pits. Investigator Alvarez continually plays to Calvin's sensitive side, reassuring him over and over and over again several dozen times that he's not a bad guy, and that the whole thing is really just an unfortunate yet terrible tragedy. He does so to try to get Calvin to keep talking to further explain what actually happened 
because the evidence they've gathered to date suggests it was no accident at all. Yes, that Calvin? You're not a bad person. Yeah, I'm a bad person. Calvin, look at me. I'm not a bad person, man. Really? I didn't help him. I left him. How long did it take, again, until you, you left him there for, what, two days? Sunday night till Tuesday? Why did it take you so long? I couldn't go back. How'd you feel when you went over there? Disgusted. Sick. Sad. Sad for a whole lot of reasons. Two families are hurt. We understand that, man. No, you don't. You'd have done the right thing. Calvin, I don't know what I would have done. I ain't knocking you on it, okay? No, I know what I should have did. No, I didn't. I should have called for help. Does anybody else know about this? Nobody knows. Not only did Calvin Allison not help Charles Locke after allegedly pushing him to the ground and to his untimely death, he had conveniently crafted an entire backstory based upon Sergeant Barnes's originally proposed theory. The only problem with the old whoops, he kissed me and I accidentally pushed him hypothesis was that it didn't match any of the evidence, nor did it match Calvin's actions in the minutes, hours, and days immediately following this so-called kiss. The boy that was in the living room, next to the living room, that's where he hit and rolled over right there. What about the blood in the other room where he was dragged? Just where I took him two days later. Detectives found a massive pooling of blood soaked into Charles Locke's living room carpet. And Calvin claims this is where he initially fell and hit his head and likely died. But his claim that he came back into Charles's house two days later after his wife and kids had left town to then begin moving Charles's body out into the backyard and into his own yard so that he could prepare it for transport and dumping off-site, was that Charles was allegedly dead by then. In fact, Calvin explained how swollen his body had become due to the decomposition by that point, and how badly it smelled. The only problem with that explanation was that there were bloody drag marks from the living room out toward the back room, along with another massive pooling of blood there where Charles likely actually died. After all, such active bleeding requires a still-beating heart, and Kelvin claims Charles had already long succumbed to his injuries by the point he dragged his body. And when I went Wednesday, it was horrible. How was it horrible, Calvin? The smell. Decomposition. It smelled death. I just... It's horrible. That happens <laughs> Is there anything else here, Kelvin? I know it's difficult to ask, but how long did it take you to wrap Charles up in that tarp? It was hard. Did it take a while? 20 minutes, maybe. Had to get up and walk out of the room. I couldn't. You had to keep taking breaks. It was horrible. Did you wear gloves or anything like that, or you just weren't thinking? I had gloves. What gloves were you using? Latex gloves. I was guessing you threw those away. Yes, sir. What trash did you throw those in? Down the street somewhere on that road. And a trash? Just threw them out. 
Investigator Alvarez has Calvin walk him through the entire sequence of events again to see if Calvin's story lines up. And for the most part, it does. After bringing Charles a plate of food on Sunday evening, the supposed attempted kiss and then the push, Calvin claims he went home and immediately washed his hands and then sat in the bathroom for 10 minutes. But if things really played out the way Calvin claimed, if he simply reactively pushed Charles Locke away, then why spend 10 minutes in the bathroom feverishly washing one's hands immediately following whatever actually happened in that house? Could it possibly have been that something else happened inside Charles Locke's home, something that left Calvin Allison's hands covered in the man's blood? Absolutely. And detectives were done beating around the bush. There was uh, one thing that caught our curiosity. Um, Charles was bound. You know what I mean? There was tape around his mouth. There was tape around his wrist. And his hands were behind his back. And his legs were bound. Was uh, Charles still alive when you came over? No. Why'd you do that? There was... I couldn't get him to roll up. I had to use that to roll him up. Why around the mouth? I don't know. Did, did you check if Charles was breathing at all? He wasn't breathing. He was already swelled up. Okay. And when Charles was first bound and you put him into that uh, the tarp, how did you get him to your truck without, you know, obviously in the neighbors or anything? To the backyard. Did you put him over the fence? Did you, in that process, because we noticed in the backyard there was a bend, did you rip the tarp a little bit too and maybe put it over? I don't know. So, you did you, when you put him in the tarp, you dragged him through the house, I'm assuming? Yes, sir. And you went to the backyard, dragged him through the backyard, and then you put him over the fence? Yes, sir. What about, did you use the other lot, that empty lot next to his house for anything? No. Calvin Allison placed Charles Locke in the tarp inside of Charles's home, drug him outside, and then hoisted his remains over the fence and into his own backyard, where he continued dragging the tarped body through his own garage, where he loaded it into his pickup truck. All of that worked to evade detection by other neighbors, only to casually pull away from the crime scene and inadvertently leave a battery of physical evidence behind, pointing directly back to 305 Frisco Road. You can't fix stupid. Calvin would go on to admit to detectives that during one of his two unscheduled trips to Walmart to pick up his wife's camisol tops and some chicken tendies for himself, he used cash for another transaction to purchase the tarp he would eventually use to conceal and dump Charles Locke's body in. As far as why he chose the old Clark sand pits as the eventual dumping site, well, he was inspired by the location's desolate feel when he first came upon it while responding to the leaky fire hydrant call with his co-worker earlier that week. Despite all of the evidence now neatly stacked against him, just a few hours after Charles Locke's body had first been discovered, Calvin Allison remained defiant, adhering to his claims that the entire thing was one big misunderstanding that simply spiraled out of control. If Charles had accidentally hit his head after attempting to kiss Calvin, then why not call for help? Why immediately go wash your hands? Why go out drinking with friends instead of telling someone or calling 911 for help? Why then, two days later, take a roll of Charles's own duct tape from his house and proceed to wrap it tightly around his head several times covering his nose and mouth? 
Why then carefully bind his hands with duct tape behind his back and wrap the man in a tarp before dumping his body in a desolate stretch of rural dead-end road? Calvin Allison couldn't say, but he was willing to co-opt Sergeant Barnes' original theory of what happened as his own, because the horrific alternative that Charles Locke was actually still alive when all of this occurred presents a much darker and more intentional angle to the killing. Calvin Allison went on to provide a voluntary written affidavit confessing to the murder, though he maintained that the entire thing was a tragic accident. He also wrote his wife and children a letter, and before detectives placed him under arrest and courted him off to jail for booking, Investigator Alvarez offered to let Calvin Allison call his wife one last time before surrendering all of his personal property and his freedom after killing their next-door neighbor. Hey. What is going on, Calvin? I did something bad. Why? I took him the food. I'm going to set it down in the kitchen. He made a pass at me and I pushed him. And he fell, his head, blood went everywhere, and I panicked. Why would you not say something? Like, why would it was an accident, Calvin? I don't know, Wendy, I panicked. <sighs> Calvin. I know, I just, I don't know, Wendy, I'm so sorry for what I'm putting you and the kids through. Why would you, like, I mean, I don't, I'm so sorry. What about Tina? What about Tina? Be honest, Calvin. I didn't have anything to do with Tina. That was all Billy. How do you know? It had to be Billy. I didn't have okay. anything to do with it. Like, why would you? Why would you? Oh, my God, Calvin. Like, why would you not have called 911? It was an accident. That's what I've been... I don't know, Wendy. I just... The blood, and he was moaning... He tried to kiss me. What? Yeah. He, um, I don't know. Can I tell her? Anything you want to tell her? He's, uh, plays on the other fence. He's a cross-dresser. <sighs> so what are you being charged with right now? I don't know. Wendy, probably, I don't know. I don't know. I'm so sorry. Here, I'm gonna go get your dad, and I'm gonna come home. Okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, okay. Listen. I'm so. Yes. I'm so sorry. I don't understand this. This is crazy, baby. You made such a bad decision. Like you've done some stupid shit, but this is like beyond stupid. I don't understand why you would put us in jeopardy like that. It was an accident. I don't either. But I love y'all. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Just I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for Charles's family. For what I've done, you and the kids. I'm. I'm, I'm, no. I'm gonna. Listen. I, I love you, my 
Calvin's wife asks what they are planning to charge her husband with before hanging up so that she can try to retain legal counsel on his behalf. Investigator Alvarez explains that he will call her to explain everything once they have more details. Calvin cries aloud in that small interrogation room after hanging up the phone, screaming aloud repeatedly, Why? 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 But did you catch something his wife said at the beginning of that call, after the gravity initially sets in that her husband has killed another man? After realizing that he's confessed, she immediately asks him, quote, What about Tina? Be honest, Calvin. The question doesn't go unnoticed and prompts one final inquiry from Investigator Alvarez before Calvin Allison is arrested and hauled away for murdering Charles Locke. Uh, Calvin, quick question for you. This is absolutely irrelevant to what happened here today. Okay. I overheard a conversation with your wife. Okay. Something about Tina. Her cousin was staying with us and was found at one of our friend's house. They were strung out on meth. What's Tina's last name? Just so we know. Tina Gabach. And was that reported, obviously, to us? Yes. We gave statements and everything. I gave DNA, all that. And who did you say did that? I know you said it was somebody else. Well, it was found on Billy Carter's land. In Longfort. See, I'm not familiar with that case. When did that happen? Uh, Years ago. Okay. It was in Oklahoma. Oh, so it's not even here? Yeah, it was in Carter County. Okay. And you were living up there, obviously? Yes. Time. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. They ever resolved that case? I don't know what's happened with it. I know they were filing charges on Billy. That's the last that we heard. It was a cousin from the other side of Wendy's family. Gotcha. 42-year-old Atina Siskavich, Calvin's wife's cousin was staying with them at their home back in Oklahoma in March of 2014 when she suddenly turned up missing. Calvin Allison was one of the last people to see her alive. Her remains weren't discovered until a year later in 2015, as her body had been dumped along a rural stretch of desolate road in Lone Grove. Sound familiar? Calvin's wife sure thought so, enough that she confidently asked him about Tina on the recorded phone line after he had just confessed to murder. Calvin Allison would ultimately plead not guilty to the charges of second-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and three counts of grand theft, the basis of self-defense. The grand theft charges were introduced after the Escambia County Sheriff's Department's ongoing investigation revealed that Calvin Allison had, in fact, used Charles Locke's checkbook to illegally procure several hundred dollars from his bank account on multiple occasions in the days immediately following his murder. Just days after his interrogation and confession, the Escambia County Medical Examiner's Office released the findings from Charles Locke's autopsy and death investigation report. 
His cause of death was ruled the result of blunt force trauma and asphyxiation. The manner was homicide. Either Kelvin Allison only gave part of the truth to investigators during his confession, or the entire thing was a lie, concocted to reduce the inevitable murder charge to second degree. Whichever it was, two things were evident. Charles Locke had been viciously beaten about the head with some type of blunt object that had likely been discarded, and was then strangled to death by Kelvin Allison, which was also likely the reason he needed so desperately to wash his hands immediately following the killing, because they were covered in Charles Locke's blood. Kelvin Allison went to trial in October of 2019, and after just two days of testimony and brief deliberations, he was found guilty on all counts. In November of that same year, he was sentenced to life in prison for Charles Locke's murder, plus an additional 14 years for the other charges. But one question still remains. Was Charles Locke Kelvin Allison's only victim? Oklahoma police don't think so. In 2014, this is where the body of Tina Sisk Gavich was found in Ardmore, Oklahoma, after she was reported missing. Ardmore police say Allison is a person of interest in her murder. Investigators there are hoping because he's locked up here, someone will come forward with information and help them solve their case. Maybe somebody will feel comfortable enough to come forward that might know something or have seen something. Uh, but we're too scared to, you know, for fear of retribution or, you know, retaliation. And uh, we'll come forward and uh, give us some information that we need to help close this case and get some closure for the family. You know, that's our main goal. 